It was the West's response to the deepening chill of the Cold War. They were sworn to stand together against aggression. An attack against one would be an attack against all. This union of 12 nations became known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or more simply, NATO. Or in the words of its first Secretary General, keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. Since its first so-called peace support intervention in the Balkans in the early 1990s, NATO has taken its lead from the US and carried out military operations in Afghanistan as well as Libya. Yet the Taliban are still in Afghanistan, Libya is in turmoil, and NATO is once again feeling the heat from an old foe. Russia's illegal aggression against Ukraine is the greatest challenge to Europe's security in a generation. I'm Mehdi Hassan, and I've come here to the Oxford Union to go head-to-head -head with Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former Prime Minister of Denmark, who up until the end of 2014 was head of NATO. I'll ask him if Western interventions in Afghanistan and Libya have led to more security or more chaos, and to what extent NATO is responsible for a new Cold War with Russia. Tonight, I'll also be joined by Richard Sakwa, Professor of Russian and European Politics at the University of Kent, and the author of Frontline Ukraine, Alexander Nekrasov, a former advisor to the Vladimir Putin government, and Ian Bond, a retired British diplomat who's now director of foreign policy at the Center for European Reform. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Anders Foe Rasmussen. A supporter of the invasion of Iraq, he oversaw NATO's air campaign in Libya. Anders Foe Rasmussen, is NATO, is the West on the verge of a new Cold War with Russia? We are pretty close to a, a, a new uh, Cold War because of... Uh, Russia's illegal actions in Ukraine. Are we looking at a military intervention, a war between Russia and the members of NATO at some stage? Is that your worry or is that your prediction? Not a war between Russia and members of NATO, but Russia is engaged militarily uh, in, in, in Ukraine. Many of your critics would say there's a curious paradox here, that NATO in a sense now exists to manage the risks created by its own existence. Um, some would say that, for example, NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe since the fall of the Berlin Wall, that played a role in making Russia feel encircled, alienated, isolated, and prompted Russia to respond aggressively. NATO incited this action on the part of Russia. That's the accusation made against you. This feeling of encirclement uh, is not justified. Uh, NATO does not constitute any threat uh, to Russia. No single ally of NATO has any intention to attack uh, Russia. That was actually the new and positive thing after the, the end of the Cold War, that we got rid of that thinking that we have East and Western Europe. And it's not justified even the perception that Russia uh, was isolated after the end of the Cold War. We did a lot to reach out to, to, to Russia. NATO, for instance, 
um, reached out to, to, to Russia in 1997. We adopted a joint document called the NATO-Russia Founding Act, and we allowed Russia to establish a permanent mission to NATO. They got access to NATO headquarters. Did you in ever offer Russia membership of NATO? In two, they didn't apply. But did in, you, in, do you think, as a former Secretary General, do you think they should have applied? Yeah, but it's hypothetical because Russia didn't apply. We did something very special. It's not hypothetical. We're, I'm asking of you. Do you think it would have been better had Russia been part of a common security alliance after the Cold War? Yeah, but if Russia fulfills the necessary criteria to become a member of our alliance, of course, it would contribute to... Uh, an improved security situation in the whole Euro-Atlantic area. Uh, in 2002, we established a NATO-Russia Council, which is something very, very special. The only country outside NATO with which we have such a, a council. So we have really done a lot to include Russia in this process. Okay. A lot of people say NATO pledged not to expand after the Cold War. The then US Secretary of State James Baker is often quoted as saying that it would not move one inch further east. You've said in recent interviews that such a view is, quote, pure propaganda. But Mikhail Gorbachev has called NATO expansion not just a mistake, but, quote, a violation of the spirit of the statements and assurances made to us in 1990. Is Gorbachev a propagandist too? Um, this is a myth spread by uh, Russia that during the re negotiations on German reunification they were promised that NATO or for that sake the EU wouldn't enlarge uh, eastwards. That was never promised and uh, recently... Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, I called this a big mistake from the very beginning. It was definitely a violation of the spirit of the statements and assurances made to us in 1990. Is he lying? Um, we, we are in the lucky situation that documents from these negotiations have now been declassified. So we can see what was actually discussed, so, what was so promised. Of lying. Enlargement was not discussed because the Warsaw Pact was not dissolved until 1991. So n none of the former communist states had applied for membership of NATO. So it wasn't discussed so and nothing was promised. So Mikhail Gorbachev, who was there at the time, you weren't. Is he imagining things? Uh, yeah, but I, I wasn't there. I don't know uh, what he thinks, but I can well, tell you. I can tell you. I can tell you. This wasn't promised. Uh, and okay. well, okay. uh, uh, Look, let me add the, the only way in which NATO could promise such a thing would be to take a unanimous decision within NATO because that's Fine. the way we take decisions. Just looking at the actual decision to expand, regardless of whether it broke a pledge, surely now you would concede, with the benefit of hindsight, given the current crisis, that it was a mistake? No, it was clearly the right thing to do for two reasons. Don't think it played any role in the current crisis? For two reasons, it was the right thing to do. Firstly, because we have to recognize that each and every nation has the right to decide itself whether it will join an alliance. Secondly, because Russia has actually benefited from the zone of stability and prosperity we have created in Eastern and Central Europe. Okay. Uh, Richard Sakwa is a professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent. He's author of the new book, Frontline Ukraine, Crisis uh, in the Borderlands. Uh, Richard, NATO expansion actually helped and benefited Russia and this is. 
I mean, I agree that uh, NATO has done enormous amount of efforts to negotiate its enlargement. But, and in fact, uh, Mr. Son, when he first became NATO General Secretary, made some very important speeches precisely identifying the key issue, and that is how to make Russia part of this uh, expanding security system on the European continent. But it's quite clear it failed. And NATO ultimately, not because of malevolence, but we were stumbled like sleepwalkers, as in 1914, into this global confrontation which could escalate far worse than it is today. Uh, do you accept that there's no military solution to the crisis in Ukraine, that Western governments are not about to go to war with Vladimir Putin's Russia? Yeah, there's no military solution. The only problem is that President Putin thinks there is a military solution. NATO doesn't? We want a political solution. But NATO has been ramping up all sorts of military activities in the region. No, NATO as such is not engaged in, in, in Ukraine. What we have done is to fulfill our core task to protect our allies. So we have reinforced NATO collective defense, among other things, reinforced air policing in the Baltic states, deployed naval vessels to the Black Sea and 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 just, uh, just to be very clear, very briefly, just to be very clear, if Vladimir Putin were to take military action or to send troops across the border into, say, one of the Baltic countries, which are NATO members, that would be war? Of course, we would have to protect uh, our allies. That follows from Article 5 in our treaty that an attack on one would be considered an attack on all. And there's been much condemnation, rightly so, of human rights abuses carried out by Russian-backed separatists. Uh, in the east of Ukraine. Would you also condemn the human rights abuses carried out by official Ukrainian armed forces, the shelling of population, civilian populations in the east of the country, uh, the use of torture, arbitrary detentions, all documented by the UN and various human rights groups? Would you condemn that? We condemned all violations of human rights. We encourage all parties to live up to their international responsibilities. But then why, is, why were you encouraging and, and almost bragging about the fact that NATO was doing more joint training exercises with the Ukrainian military? It is an integrated part of our partnership with Ukraine that we uh, have a dialogue on human rights. That sounds like a cop-out. No, it's a real thing. It basically means uh, we'll help your military and we'll have a dialogue on the side, but nothing changes. Our position is very clear. We condemn all violations of human rights. That's fair enough, but in, you're condemning all, all violations on all sides, but you're backing one of the two sides. Obviously, we think that Russia has violated international law. Uh, Russia has illegally That's annexed Crimea into the Russian fe torture, Federation. Does it? That doesn't justify torture by, by Ukrainian armed forces. That's my no, point. No, obviously not, but put this into perspective, please. Uh, it is Russia that has attacked uh, Ukraine and illegally annexed Crimea into the Russian Federation. That's a violation of international law. But two violations don't make a right, do they? No, no, exactly. Does it make you uncomfortable that NATO is now effectively allied with some pretty unsavory groups on the ground? Many would say openly neo-Nazi groups fighting against Russian-backed separatism. NATO is not allied. Uh, well, NATO, NATO does not de deliver uh, weapons uh, to Ukraine for the very reason that uh, NATO doesn't possess uh, weapons. Um, you're, you're developing and their capabilities equipment. and capacities. That's your quote from last year. Yeah, yeah, but that's uh, training activities. Okay, uh, so let me rephrase the question. Does it bother you that you're training people who may be working with neo Nazis? No, we don't. We don't. USA Today did a big report on the Azov Battalion, 900 members strong. Their symbol is borrowed from the Waffen SS. They're on the front line of the fighting. Yeah, but we don't cooperate with Nazis. Does that bother you? Let me you? stress that. Okay, does that bother you? 
that there are groups with neo-Nazi insignias fighting on the front line. What bothers me is uh, the Russian propaganda. Okay, but the Russian propaganda, USA Today, last time I checked, was not a Russian propaganda. It was an American center-right newspaper. Yeah, but let me stress once again, we do not cooperate with Nazis. Okay. You, you referred to the Russian illegal invasion and annexation of Crimea. You've called it a violation of the UN Charter. Some people might say that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, given you supported the illegal invasion and occupation of Iraq back in 2003. How does that work? Yeah, now you're speaking to me personally because yeah, NATO was, no, no, NATO you, was sorry, not involved. To clarify, you in your role as Prime Minister of Denmark, yeah, yeah. through your weight behind the illegal invasion occupation of Iraq, you didn't seem to worry about the UN Charter then? No, because it was not illegal. It was based on... It wasn't illegal? It was based on UN principles. And our argument for participating in that operation was that Saddam Hussein didn't uh, comply with numerous UN resolutions. And yet Kofi Annan, the head of the UN at the time, called it an illegal invasion. Years later, you're attacking Putin for an illegal invasion. Do you see the double standard? No, it's not double standard. It's, let me remind you of just one thing. Back in 1994, Ukraine gave up her nuclear weapons. In exchange, uh, Ukraine received guarantees from three nuclear powers, the United States, United Kingdom and Russia, guarantees of existing borders, which included Crimea. So clearly, Russia has violated these commitments as well as international law. And the countries that invaded Iraq clearly violated the UN Charter, according to the Secretary General of the United Nations. I don't agree. Okay, let's go to our panel who've been waiting patiently to come in. Ian Bond, you're a former British diplomat. Uh, you've worked at NATO HQ. You're now Director of Foreign Policy for the Centre for European Reform. Um, we talked, uh, Anders and I, about the whole expansion and what role that played, whether or not there was a pledge or not. Let me put the same question to you. Do you believe that has zero relevance to the current discussion on Ukraine, new Cold War, etc.? Did the NATO expansion play no role whatsoever in your view? No, it didn't. The roots of the crisis are in the mindset of President Putin and those around him. The objective reality is that Russia is not encircled and that the countries of NATO, since NATO enlarged, have dramatically cut their defence spending and the size of their armed forces. Russia is facing fewer NATO forces than at any time in, in its history. And just, and, it, to, and just to be clear, to correct me if I'm wrong, you want NATO currently to ramp up its military presence in that part of the world, to take a tougher line against Putin? Yes, absolutely. In what shape, just very briefly, what would that tougher line look like? What would that ramping well, up look like? To begin with, at least having a permanent presence in the territory of all the NATO member states. Okay, well, let me bring in uh, Alexander Nekrasov. Uh, you're a former advisor to the Kremlin, former uh, advisor to President Boris Yeltsin. You've advised the Putin administration as well. Ian says this is all the encirclement argument. It's all in the heads of people like Putin. It's all about their feelings, it's their paranoia, and the root cause is Russian expansionism. Well, first of all, I think that the NATO expansion was a provocation. Because when the Cold War ended, NATO's role should have ended as well. I find it remarkable, Mr. Rasmussen, that you are saying that NATO expansion brought prosperity to Europe and to Russia, of all countries. Well, first of all, if you look at the European Union now, it's bankrupt, and you have brought, uh, I mean, not you, but NATO, has created a situation when World War III is no longer a fantasy in Europe. So to say that 
it all is the fault of Mr. Putin, is just bizarre. I'm sorry, I, I can't buy logic like that. Do you want to respond, Anders? Yeah, but uh, clearly uh, the attack uh, on uh, Ukraine is the responsibility of the Russian president. I mean, I saw uh, an, an interview broadcasted recently where he, he made quite clear that he had made that decision. He's responsible. But the point is that NATO and the European Union, mostly America, have crossed the red line in Kyiv when they organized the overthrow of a legitimate regime. Now, you can say that President Yunukovych was not a great president. Well, some people say President Obama or Mr. Cameron are not great leaders as well, and Russia is not saying let's overthrow them, you see? So you can't really cross the red line knowing perfectly well how important Ukraine for, is for Russia, and then claim that the new illegal, basically, government is asking you for help. That doesn't work like this in the real world. Yeah, but it, it's not credible to, to, to accuse us of having organized the demonstrations in Kiev. Uh, it was an, a national movement to ensure that Ukraine uh, could take me, uh, decisions when freely. ministers from European countries address the protesters, when ambassadors from European countries. Okay, let, let mix with talking of ambassadors, Ian Bond's a former ambassador and he wants to come in. What do you want? To well, I, I wanted to say it's this point about, you know, Ukraine is somehow a red line. The problem all along is that Russia treats Ukraine as an object and not a subject of international relations. If you accept that people have agency, then they have the right to determine their own future. Richard Sackville wants I, I to think respond. This is an argument. Obviously, we all, um, sovereignty is highly important. However, there are geopolitical and security realities. So, uh, if I was today now to say, on a basis of sovereignty, I can telephone Cuban leadership and say, it was all a mistake. October 1962, you are a sovereign country and you can decide whether to put nuclear weapons on your island or not. It's absurd. All countries are part of a larger security system. And NATO, of all units, bodies, should understand this. Respond to that point that every country, especially big powers, have zones of influence. America wouldn't tolerate Cuba doing whatever it wants. We've seen an embargo for 50 years because they didn't like Cuba's behavior. Obviously, nations have their national uh, interests, um, but I think we should stick to one fundamental principle. Each and every nation has the right to decide herself whether she will join an alliance, whether she will stay neutral, or whatever. Okay, well, let's move on to something else that you've had to deal with while during your period as Secretary General. Um, Libya, NATO took the lead, the military lead role in March 2011 in Libya uh, in an air war that ended up toppling Colonel Gaddafi's regime, uh, which was followed then by his pretty grisly death uh, in the desert. Is NATO now in the regime change business? No, we are not. Uh, we uh, fulfilled fully the mandate given by the UN Security Council. Did that mandate include toppling Gaddafi? No, but NATO was not part of that. That was done by ground forces, freedom fighters in Libya. We were not responsible for the killing Many of Gaddafi. Many people have described NATO uh, in Libya as Al-Qaeda's air force. Is that a fair description? <laughs> no, that's you not a fair... You were dropping bombs for ground forces who contained yeah, some pretty nasty not groups that's that went not off to fight in Syria. That's not a fair description. Uh, the UN Security Council resolution mandated to take all necessary measures, all necessary measures to protect the civilian population against attack, and we did that, and we did so successfully. 
Uh, NATO is providing intelligence and reconnaissance assets to the rebels to help them track down Colonel Gaddafi. Is that a fair description of what happened? No, that's not a fair description. That's a description uh, not, from not the British Defence Secretary, yeah, Liam Fox, not, during the NATO war. Not with the aim to topple Gaddafi. Uh, so I, Liam Fox uh, was lying? Uh, uh, he must have worked with Liam Fox. He was the uh, Defence Secretary the of the United Kingdom government. The purpose government. of our air campaign in Libya was to protect the civilian Agreed. population, and That's we did That's what you so. say was the purpose, but so. I'm, I'm reading something else to you. NATO is providing intelligence assets to the rebels to help them track down Gaddafi. That's what you were doing. No, we didn't. We provided help to protect the civilian population against the terrorists. No, he says track down Gaddafi. That's what he says. Yeah, but you can't track down Gaddafi from uh, the air. That's simply well, not possible. There were special forces as well on the ground, as we know at the time. You talk about humanitarian intervention. In the words of the NGO, in the International Crisis Group, very well-respected organization, they say the death toll subsequent to the seven-month NATO intervention was at least 10 times greater than the tally of those killed in the first few weeks of the conflict before NATO intervened. How does that translate into a humanitarian intervention if there are more civilian casualties after NATO's air campaign than there were before? Yeah, but I don't agree. Uh, we concluded our campaign on the 31st of October 2011. It was a very successful campaign. What happened afterwards can't be NATO's responsibility. Why not? Because we left. Uh, we had a mandate. It I'm expired. So you, so and on, we you left. Can, you can open Pandora's box in Libya, but you're not responsible for what comes out of it. The international community failed to help the new authorities to build a new society from scratch. But it wasn't just the international community. You called NATO's operation in Libya a great success, quote, a model for the future. You even predicted at the start of the war that there was, quote, no possibility that the country would be overrun by so-called Islamist militias. Well, it has been. The country's in chaos, beset by violence. Um, it's proved to be anything but a great success. Some would say it's time for NATO to apologize. Yeah, but uh, the fact is that the military campaign as such was a great success. You were we, asked we, in March 2011, the, is there a risk of there being an Islamist presence in Libya? Quote, your response, no, I don't think that's a possibility. Yeah, but so now, there, now there is a list Islamist so uh, presence. Uh, the inter as I said to you, the international community failed to follow up after a very successful military campaign. And in so hindsight, you could look back and say, we were wrong to do it in the way we did it, because no. it produced the chaos in Libya today. No, I won't say that. On the contrary, we did the right thing. The UN Security Council adopted um, an historic resolution of responsibility to protect the Libyan people, and we did so. Okay, let me ask you this question before we go to a break. If another Libya-like situation came along, and you're the Secretary General of NATO, and you're asked to enforce the mandate and do it. Would you do the same thing again? Personally, I am in favor of protecting civilians uh, against uh, such attacks, so I wouldn't exclude that once again I would be in favor of such a decision. But of Even course. Even if it leads to the post war chaos that we've seen in Libya, a war you supported, in Iraq, a war you supported. I think the international community as a whole should learn some lessons from all this, namely, even a very successful military operation can be in vain if you don't follow up uh, with a determined uh, political and diplomatic effort. Okay, we're going to have to take a break there. Join us uh, in part two of Head to Head, where we'll be talking to the former Secretary General of NATO about NATO's war in Afghanistan, and we'll be hearing from our very patient audience here in the Oxford Union. That's after the break.
Welcome back to Head to Head on Al Jazeera English. We're speaking uh, to Anders Fogh Rasmussen as our guest tonight, the former Secretary General of NATO, former Prime Minister of Denmark. Um, Anders, in part one, we talked about the crisis in Ukraine. We talked about the war in Libya, which NATO executed. In August 2003, for the first time in NATO's history, the organization took charge of a mission uh, outside the North Atlantic area in Afghanistan. In December 2014, 11 years later, that mission, the ISAF mission, came to an end. Would it be fair to describe that NATO mission in Afghanistan, five years of which was on your watch as Secretary General, would it be fair to describe that mission as a complete and utter failure? No, <laughs> that wouldn't be fair. Uh, actually, we achieved our goal. We came to Afghanistan in the first place to prevent the country from once again becoming a safe haven for uh, terrorists, and uh, we achieved that goal. Partly because you gave them other safe havens like Iraq and Libya. I think we have to face the reality that international terrorism spreads across borders uh, and uh, it will be a very, very long-term effort to fight international terrorism. If we look at the record in Afghanistan under the NATO years, suicide bombings up, civilian casualties up, heroin production up, the Taliban resurgent, Al-Qaeda still in existence. How is that not a failure? Again, let's be very open about it. There are many problems uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, but Afghanistan today is a much better society uh, than it was uh, when we started our uh, operation. If you take the educational system, eight million children go to school now, out of which uh, a third uh, are girls. Previously, they couldn't get an education. Health system uh, has improved. Life expectancy has gone up. Child mortality has gone down. Civilian um, casualties from violence are up. Uh, Suicide bombings are up. There are problems when it comes to uh, security. Those are not problems. Those we, go to the very have, fundamental heart of the conflict. We have built a very strong Afghan uh, security force, around 350,000 Afghan soldiers and police. So we have done our job. Now the Afghans must do their job. In general, the US-led NATO mission, in terms of bringing security, has not been successful. Do you know who said that? I don't know, but we have achieved our goal. As the president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, said that. Yeah, he said many things. <laughs> Let me rephrase. The Western-backed president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, said it has not been a successful operation. Yeah. That's a pretty damning indictment from a president who the West supported and helped install in power originally, I, I, I saying met, NATO failed. I met President Karzai on many occasions, but I also met uh, Afghans in the street, and I can't assure you that they appreciate uh, all we have done. It's a very sweeping statement. I think a lot of Afghans don't appreciate what you've done. A lot of the I, Afghans uh, if you who were ask, killed by NATO if, forces, if you ask bombed Afghans, at weddings, tortured if, at Bagram. Uh, of course, you will, you will be able to find Afghans uh, that didn't want our presence, but a huge, ma a huge majority of Afghans appreciate what we did. And now they are in charge of security. You failed to defeat the Taliban, which was one of your core goals. There will still be security challenges uh, in Afghanistan. That's more than a security challenge. That's a failed goal. You go in to defeat the Taliban and you leave no, our, our with goal, the Taliban our resurgent. Goal, our goal was to prevent Afghanistan from once again being a safe haven for terrorists. That wasn't your only goal. That wasn't your only. You no, said no, that you was said, our goal. This is what you said in 2010. Defeat is not an option. We will win. The Taliban will never win. How's that working out? They didn't win. They didn't win. Did you win? There's 
Uh, Did you win? We achieved our goal. Uh, Did you win? To <laughs> it's your quote. We will win. I'm asking the question. Did you win? Yeah. In, in, in that respect, in that respect, we won. Yes, we achieved... In the achieved respect of defeating the Taliban, you no, won. We, we achieved really? our goal. Okay. But the Taliban is still there. And that's why we built a very strong uh, Afghan security force of 350,000 soldiers and police. And now they are in charge of security and they, they are doing a great job. I'm sure many would dispute that. Isn't the lesson of Afghanistan that there are certain parts of the world in which Western militaries, and of course NATO is the preeminent Western military alliance, should just stay out of, should stay away from, because they're seen uh, as invaders, as a colonial force? The international community had to react after 9-11. Uh, uh, the terrorist attacks uh, against the United States were rooted in Afghanistan, and obviously we had to react. You didn't have to stay there for 14 years, though, because of 9-11. No, it's a long time, and uh, seen retrospectively, uh, I would also say that one of the lessons uh, learned uh, is that we should start uh, training and education of local security forces uh, much earlier than we did. We didn't start in earnest until 2009. We should have started earlier. Uh, Richard Sakwa, uh, Professor of Russian and European Politics here in the UK. Uh, is it that the NATO forces were seen as liberators or that they were seen as invaders and occupiers? What, you know, was there a historical context to any of this? Well, indeed, once again, a huge strategic uh, blindness, if you like, uh, going all the way back uh, when uh, the West was supporting the Mujahideen, and this is a monster created in the West and which is still there. And indeed, even British intervention, I give all uh, respect to the British soldiers who served in Helmand, it was strategically madness to a place precisely which uh, the British had been in the 19th century as if they'd come back for revenge. Uh, Ian Bond, you're a former British diplomat. You've worked at NATO HQ. Let me ask you the same question I asked Anders. Uh, did NATO win in Afghanistan, in your view? There was a peaceful transition from Hamid Karzai to Ashraf Ghani, and that's a victory. That's a victory, but did NATO win the war in Afghanistan that it set out to fight? We can all find victories of some sort in any conflict. Well, I don't know what, how else I would define a victory. We Defeating have a the Taliban? That was one of the goals that Bush and Blair set out in 2001? Well, defeating the Taliban in the sense that the Taliban were not able to prevent a democratic election in Afghanistan and a peaceful transition of power. And that was not something that Afghanistan had had in an extremely long time. So I would count that as a victory. Is it a total victory? No, it certainly isn't. Do you think damage has been done to NATO's reputation as this all-powerful Western military alliance, unable to quote-unquote defeat a bunch of quote-unquote Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Well, if anybody thought that NATO was an all-powerful fighting force, then yes, but then, you know, that's a, a pretty mistaken perception. If you look at the numbers of troops that NATO had in the field, even when we had more than 100,000, for a country the size of Afghanistan, with the population of Afghanistan, that was actually a very small number. If, if you look at the number of British troops that were trying to control a territory the size of Helmand, okay. it's extraordinary that they achieved anything at all. Let me put that question to the man sitting next to you, Alexander Nekrasov, is a former Kremlin advisor. You guys, the Russians, put in a whole load of troops into Afghanistan in the 80s. How did that work out? Well, it didn't work out because uh, obviously there were, uh, they were supported, the Mujahideen was supported by the Americans, by the West, the, 
there was a flow of weapons coming in, but at least uh, the Soviet Union did try to build something there, and it left something there. NATO ne left nothing but the huge crops of... Oh, come uh, on. The Russians killed more Afghans than NATO this, did in Afghanistan well, they in didn't, the 80s. actually. This statistics prove nothing, because the biggest problem Afghanistan had was that the Taliban was running Afghanistan even when NATO troops were still there. Now, what I find remarkable is that how on earth all these NATO troops couldn't stop uh, the poppy production. And now Afghanistan provides 94, Mr. Asmussen, 94% of heroin in the world. So how did that happen? Nobody knows. So I think it was a total disaster. I think Afghanistan is again a crisis zone. I think all these figures with girls going to school will come down to zero soon because the Taliban are coming back. That's the problem. Are the Taliban coming back in your view? No, there will still be Taliban there, but the fact is that uh, they don't have the strength uh, to actually, as Ian Bond uh, stressed, prevent elections from going uh, forward. Uh, the way the elections in Afghanistan uh, was uh, conducted is actually, was actually a great success and also a tribute uh, to the Afghan security forces. Okay, let's go to our audience. Gentleman here in the front row. Hi, my name is Olaf. I'm from Amnesty International. We recently released a report that looked at specifically at civilian casualties in Afghanistan by NATO forces and found pretty compelling evidence that all of these amounted to war crimes. My question to you is, do you think NATO is doing enough to push its member states to ensure justice for what is illegal killings of civilians? Absolutely. We have a clear focus uh, on that. Uh, but let me emphasize that according to United Nations statistics, uh, the number of civilian casualties caused by uh, NATO uh, or ISAF operations um, has drastically declined over the years. Uh, and furthermore, the huge, huge, huge majority of civilian casualties uh, are caused by the Taliban. That doesn't quite deal with this question, though. Regardless of who's killing more, if NATO has committed war crimes, are those NATO commanders being held to account? Yeah, but uh, I, have, uh, I have no examples uh, of such uh, alleged uh, war Maybe crimes. But if, uh, but if there is evidence, uh, that will, of course, uh, be addressed uh, according to uh, our rules. Have yes. you read the amnesty report on, NATO, on accusing NATO of war crimes in Afghanistan? No, I haven't read the report, but of course I have heard a lot of allegations. Uh, you don't agree with them? I can only say that if there is clear evidence of abuse or violations uh, of uh, international rules or human rights, then it will be uh, dealt with properly. Okay, uh, let's go to the back of the hall. Let's go right to the back. Hello. I was recently in Crimea. You put a lot of weight on people being able to choose themselves. Everyone I spoke to said they were very, very happy to be what they called reunified with Russia. I think we've got a problem in not understanding that actually they want to be part of Russia. It was not an invasion. This is a complete fabrication. And I think a big step forward would be if you, NATO, would accept that Crimea made a decision rather than punishing Russia for it. Well, uh, I think if that's the case, uh, the whole issue should be dealt with according to the Ukrainian constitution, according to international law, and not by grabbing land by force. Okay, let's go back to the audience. Uh, let's go to the gentleman here in the second row. The situation now is that we have nuclear powers 
facing up to each other like they used to. It's very serious. And the question, my question to you is, is NATO's policy, which is a very aggressive and provocative and expansionist policy in Europe, where is that leading us to a peaceful future? Uh, our core task is to protect our allies against attack. And the best way to ensure peace is to uh, strengthen our collective defense so that it's also a credible deterrence. So to deter attacks, that's the best way to ensure peace. Can I just ask a question to Alexander Nekrasov on that very subject? I'm reminded of a recent interview Vladimir Putin did in which he said he, he actually admitted that he had nuclear weapons on standby at the start of this crisis. That's a deeply irresponsible thing to say, isn't it? No. He was saying that there was a moment when the, the, the Kremlin was so nervous that they were thinking that they might have to do it, but they didn't do it. So I don't really, you know, understand you, why, why there's so much fuss about this. When you this. hear about these reports and you hear these questions, yeah. as fuss as they're nuclear weapons, Alexander, do you think we're closer, God forbid, to a nuclear war now than we have been at any stage since the end of the Cold War? No, in reality, I don't think so. But of course, we are all concerned by these strange statements uh, from political leaders uh, in uh, Russia. And let me emphasize that since the end of the Cold War, uh, NATO nuclear powers have uh, reduced the number of nuclear weapons drastically, while we haven't seen the same on the Russian side. Okay, let's go back here. Lady here in the front row. Uh, NATO insists that Russian regular army has been fighting in eastern Ukraine. However, it doesn't present any sophisticated evidence to support this statement. So why would you say should we trust NATO on that issue? because we have clear evidence. Uh, we have also presented uh, satellite images that clearly, that clearly show uh, uh, movements of uh, weapons and personnel from uh, Russia into Ukraine. Recently, Philip Breedlove, the US general in charge of NATO, talked about 40,000 troops massing on the border. The Germans came out and said, no, our intelligence say 20,000. I mean, there does seem to be some exaggerated and some hyping of the threat on the NATO side. No, uh, uh, the general is not exaggerating uh, the, the threat. We have seen a massive build-up of Russian troops along uh, the Ukrainian border. Okay. Um, let's go back to our audience. Uh, let's take a question from a lady here, yes? Could NATO stop acting as an appeaser to Russia and come up with a clear, definitive strategic plan in order to halt the Russian troops? from going further into the territory of Ukraine? Clearly, there is a difference between being a member of NATO and not being a member of NATO. If you are a member of NATO, you are covered by our Article 5, the collective defense. An attack on one is an attack on all. Ukraine is not a member of, of NATO. Uh, and I don't think any NATO ally has appetite uh, for military confrontation uh, with um, uh, Russia. But as I indicated, if this continues, if Russia doesn't stop the destabilization of eastern Ukraine, then I think personally uh, that individual NATO allies should consider delivery uh, of defensive weapons uh, to Ukraine so that Ukraine can improve its capability to defend itself. 
And I, I base this statement well, on well, the fact well, that Putin Ukraine... just send more weapons to his side. Yeah, Aren't we just uh, ratcheting up? Of course, there is uh, a clear risk that uh, President one. Putin would use this as a pretext for further escalation. Exactly, and yet but you still support what, what is the alternative? The alternative would be that the Russians succeed in Ukraine, and I'm concerned that if they succeed in Ukraine, other countries could be next in line. Okay, let's go to the gentleman at the back of the hall. Ali Sajjad, Ali Zada from Afghanistan. Um, earlier on, you said that um, you'll help civilians uh, under attack, although during your period of time, most uh, of the cities in Afghanistan were bombarded. You also talked about Afghanistan having a stronger uh, security force. Forget about Taliban coming back. ISIS have started um, their activities uh, in four different provinces in Afghanistan. How can you be trusted again? Yeah, but obviously we can't stay in Afghanistan uh, forever. Uh, we have never considered ourselves uh, a occupation uh, force. Uh, we have helped Afghanistan uh, to build a strong security force uh, itself so that uh, the but, Afghan but security forces can take... But do you concede that you've, we know, you've, you've said the achievements, which, you know, no one's going to dispute some of the achievements, but would you also concede the harm that you did in Afghanistan as well over those years? I mean, there has been a lot of loss of life, unnecessary loss of life at NATO's hands. Surely you have to concede that. No, I won't. Uh, so, so nobody can, died, can, nobody can, died wrongfully I, at the hands I, of NATO, I, not a soul. I will be brief, I, I will be very clear that from an overall perspective we did the right thing, and we have helped. A good way we have the specific helped, question. I we have helped Afghanistan, and now it's for the Afghans to do their part of the job. But the Afghans who died at your hands would probably say they weren't helped by NATO. Is the point I'm making? Overall, we have helped Afghanistan, and Afghanistan yeah. today is a better society than I when we you arrived. I me deep down because you're using the word overall. Okay, let's try and squeeze in some more questions before we finish. Let's go to the gentleman right there at the back. My question is this: Do you think that there's a role for? of NATO in a peaceful world? I would say NATO is the most successful peace movement the world has ever known. <laughs> uh, and yeah, but the fact is, thanks to NATO, we have managed uh, to keep peace and stability in Europe uh, since uh, the end of the Second World War. You just told us that, there, that a country has illegally invaded and annexed its neighbour. It's the biggest security threat of all. That happened on your watch, on NATO's watch. Yep, uh, and uh, that is the dramatically changed security situation. So from the end of uh, the Second World War until Russia illegally uh, annexed Crimea into the Russian Federation, we have experienced an unprecedented period of peace and stability in Europe. But in Russia's, Europe, in Russia, Europe. Yeah, Russia's, action, and Libyans Russia's action is a wake-up call. It's a dramatically changed security situation in Europe. Okay, let's take some more questions. A gentleman here in the second row. How can you justify NATO's recent recommendation for its members to commit to 2% GDP on defence spending when millions of people living in NATO member states are living with years of austerity measures? Unfortunately... <coughs> <coughs> Unfortunately, security com comes at a cost, uh, but insecurity is much more expensive. That's why NATO is a kind of insurance. It's a security insurance. So you can compare to your uh, private insurances. After big storms, many accidents, your insurance premium will go up. And that's exactly what has happened. 
uh, our security insurance has become more expensive because of the Russian aggression. Yeah, but buying insurance for your car is not like buying an aircraft carrier to go to war with, No, surely. it's more expensive, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> lady here in the front row. How would NATO react if Russia welcomed a pro-Russian regime change in, let's say, Mexico, Canada, and established its military facilities there? Uh, we stick to the principle that each and every nation has the right to decide itself whether it will join an alliance or not. And that goes for Georgia, and that goes for Ukraine, so and what, it's not for Russia so to what, decide. So what would be the reaction in the U.S. Senate uh, if Mexico was to station some Russian bases and Russian troops? I don't know, but I think... What do you think would yeah, be the reaction? Do you think it would be okay? Do you I think it would be a calm, moderate reaction from Senator no, John McCain and others? Actually, I... I <laughs> I can't answer that question. You I know and know. I know that the United States would never tolerate in its backyard, what it refers to Latin America as, uh, Russian presence. I think right now we are speaking pure theory. Okay, let's take a question from the back. Hi, um, you've repeatedly blamed bad outcomes on the wider international community. Do you not think you've been short-sighted when planning NATO operations, not taking into account the lack of support that has often come after you've pulled out of countries? Yeah, obviously, case by case, we will have to make an assessment whether uh, an, an operation uh, is, is possible, obviously also to ensure that it has a clear uh, and sound uh, legal basis, whether there is uh, local and regional uh, support. Uh, all these elements are included uh, when a decision But it wasn't uh, in Libya. Clearly it wasn't uh, in Libya. It was in Libya. Uh, and, so in, and, so and in March 2011, when uh, you committed NATO in Libya, you knew that you would have to walk away uh, and wash your hands of the situation. A very important part of that decision was the fact that uh, countries in the region not only supported our operation, but some of them also, four countries from the region, actively participated uh, in the operation. Did you and ring round your member states and say, by the way, what happens after we're done? Isn't that your responsibility as the head of NATO to ask that question? No, it's not our you responsibility. You don't care. No, you just it, say, it, we'll it, bomb and go. Uh, let's be clear about this. Amazing. That's not, yeah, that is not a NATO responsibility because <laughs> NATO is a military organization and what follows is a civilian task. That's for the I'm UN. I'm not saying it's not, but you don't even care what follows? You don't even bother to inquire? Of course. You're not we, curious? Of course we care, but it's not a NATO responsibility. It's rather for the well, UN and by definition and it is. If you fought the war, then you're responsible for what comes after the war. You can't just walk away. No, but if that's the case, then you will have to change the whole NATO setup and make NATO a broader civilian organization, and that's not the case. Or well, NATO, NATO could avoid intervening NATO in the NATO is a military organization, and what follows is a civilian task. Um, before we finish, let me ask you this. Given the fact that the U.S. funds, I think, three quarters of NATO's budget, the U.S. provided most of the manpower for the Afghan uh, operation, and the supreme military commander of NATO is always an American general, what would you say to those who say the NATO Secretary General, people like yourself, are basically a pawn for U.S. interest. You're basically a fig leaf for quote-unquote U.S. imperialism. That's not an accurate description of what's actually going on in, in NATO. Of course, <laughs> uh, uh, the U.S. has quite some weight uh, in our talks when they pay 75% uh, of, of, of uh, the bill for our common security. But NATO is an organization that takes decisions by unanimity, by consensus, and all countries play a role in that respect. You were never pressured or overridden by the Americans during your period? No, I can assure you I, I, I was not. No.
I, not one single example. Well, on that note, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, thank you so much for joining us here on Head to Head. Thank you very much to our panel for coming here and putting their questions. Thanks to our audience here in the Oxford Union, and thanks to you all for watching. Good night.